All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is going to serve as episode 197. A couple weeks ago, we asked for questions to be submitted by followers. Uh, we got a ton of them, actually. We asked twice the second time they came pouring in. Uh, so we will be covering those this episode. Jason Lingren is with me. Welcome, Jason. Good afternoon, Crow. We got a ton of questions to go through here, do we not? We have many, many. So that's a good thing. Uh, we're coming up on episode 200. Uh, as a side note, uh, we're tr- going to try to prepare a special episode around the sci-fi genre, uh, if everything works in our favor. The other thing is the soundtrack everyone wanted from Shoot the Moon is now on CD, baby. It's linked from my Twitter. I assume Rose probably has it on Facebook. If you're interested, you can send an email if you can't find it. Anything else, Jason? As of this moment, the digital version is available. I am working on getting CDs made. It should be available to find if you have trouble finding it on a search on the CD Baby store. Yeah, well, they can always just email too. I just finished the artwork for even, I guess the disc gets artwork. So we we did some moon art for uh, for the disc. Anything else? Let's hit the questions. All right, here we go, man. First one is from Rocky. Was the Carrington event real? Do solar flares really happen? Thank you for your time. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming the Carrington event is the 18, what would it be? I don't know, 1850s, I'm guessing. I could be wrong. I probably am wrong. Uh, the idea that somehow there was a drastic solar flare that knocked out all the teletype and, and all. No, I'm not accepting these things. The reason I don't is because, first of all, this is before the modern era, right? So it's all just back reporting, and you know how I feel about reported history. It's a lie agreed upon. But what we see so often is the fear porn around the sun's going to kill you, the sun's going to end the earth. It's nonsense. People forget that the root of the word sun originally, Helios or Helios, is the root for healing. Uh, Even if you go back to the Greek myth, Apollo, many people forget He was serving as the mythical god of the sun, but these are allegories from nature. One of those things that Apollo was supposed god, lower G, uh, he was an aspect of nature, was was medicine and healing, all tied to the sun. And do they really happen? Sure, they happen. Are they a danger? I do not accept them as a danger. What would you add, Jason? Well, it happened on September 1st and 2nd of 1859, and the only thing that was really in existence then would have been telegraph lines which can act as an antenna. So my thoughts are something could have happened. There's physics that could back it up, but as to whether it happened exactly the way it did, who's to say? Yeah, I'm not buying. We've we've gone through periods where they're warning there's going to be a solar flare pointed straight at the earth and all this other nonsense. To me, all these things are misdescribed. And so I do what I always do. No, prove, prove to me beyond the shadow of doubt there's something here. And by the way, I've used a solar telescope and um, I've said this many times. When I first got it many years ago, there was all this activity and detail on the sun. Uh, last time I was able to take a careful look, none of it. The sun was much paler in its appearance. Uh, the the prominences or what looked like flames coming off the side in hydrogen alpha, very few of them, no surface detail, and almost never sunspots like they used to be. Put a fine point on it, anyhow. Implications that whatever the sun really is and how it works is changing. Well, from my point of view, it's misdescribed. And uh, I know the mainstream view is we're at solar minimum or something, uh, 11-year cycle, if I remember correctly. I try to... I've tried to unremember all that stuff, but anyhow. Yes, 11 years is the claim. Next, we have Charles. 
Hello, Crow and Jason. I'm thinking about the movie The Truman Show, or The True Man Show. He was purchased as a baby, baggage and effects intact, raised in a false, heavily controlled, and monitored construct. As Christoph said, Truman is not stuck here. He can leave anytime he wants. When Truman does leave, he crosses the sea and enters the public through a portal or a door. The scene ends with him being showered with a bright light. The light or gift of God? Could this be allegory for his leaving the system and claiming his true gift, thus becoming a true man as defined by Kurt? What are our thoughts? Yeah, I think I think you're on the money. Um, you know, we've repeatedly said that the Truman Show is a one-to-one allegory in so many ways. I mean, it's almost like there's not a frame in that movie that's not either poking us in the eye because we don't see things that we should. How about when Truman's on the on the beach there and he comments about the perfect sunset and it shows the sky and the moon is right next to the sun? That can't happen, but in Truman's eyes, he doesn't know any better. Um, I think it's exactly this, and I think that you picked one of the Kristoff quotes that matters the most. Um, Truman's not stuck here. What he's implying is we'll do everything we can to keep him stuck here, but if he truly sets his mind to it, he can escape. And as you say, at the end, he does. And I think that is a perfect allegory for where we all are, which is why so many of these things matter. You can't possibly hope to get out of a thing that you don't understand, and that's why all this matters. Yeah, I think this one's really obvious. There's things that are going on throughout the narrative, showing him waking up to the reality, questioning it, having trouble deciding about what to do, and then finally... He can't take it anymore, and he fights his way to freedom. I think that's a really good allegory for what a lot of people go through. Well, you made a lot of key points here. Yeah, he's going across the water. Yeah, he's in a boat. Uh, How many realize that, if I remember correctly, it's been a long time since I've looked at this, but there's a number on the sail of that boat, which I believe is a psalm, if I'm not mistaken. And how many guests have we had on, most recently Kurt, showing that the Old Testament and the New Testament are divisions four types of what we'll call law, for lack of of better terms. But there it is. Next up is Jamie. Hello, Crow and Jason. I'm Larry's neighbor on KOTO Radio in Telluride, Colorado. I include samples of your first hour on the air with a smile. My question is about the incredibly old individual whom Giancarlo had the experience with. Did he appear old? Did he still look middle-aged? I'm fascinated by this character. Thank you. Well, first of all, Jamie, thank you for running our content in Telluride or being next to that. Looking back, I'm I'm kind of standoffish because I've got to be careful what I say here. Uh, Giancarlo and I and Jason talked a lot offline um, about things that would not be presented to the public. What I'll do is I'll give you the impression from all the conversations that we had, both the recorded and unrecorded. The impression that I got was the man looked ancient. What impression did you get, Jason? Yes, he looked like an old man, but not a weak old man. His eyes were strong. His entire bearing and demeanor still had strength to it, despite the fact that he looked like an aged individual. Right. That's a heck of a tale. That that whole narrative that Giancarlo lays down, we, we, I think we labeled it the Eyes Wide Shut episode, and it was pretty much just about that. Um, a one-to-one allegory for the ideas put forward in that Kubrick movie. Um, The things that struck me about that are where we are and where we could be. I've said many times, what if we never got 
so many cell phones in around the year 2000 or whenever it was, we started getting tons of them. Um, would we be on the threshold of speaking mind to mind now? I mean, I have friends and I know, and I've known women for many years before that, that were so intuitive to be on the cusp of what we might call ESP. But I think a lot of this technology is retarding the abilities that are reflected in that Giancarlo uh, story, where clearly, if everything's as it was described, someone's mind got read there at that table. Yeah, it's a very interesting story. It would be interesting to find out more, but I think we probably have to leave it just at that point. Right, we have to draw the line. Um, we've got to be careful when we talk about things like this. Next is Lion520 in Tucson, Arizona. My question is about the longtime emperor of Ethiopia, Hale Selassie I. Have you ever looked at him and his life? If so, what are your thoughts on him? Well, I have not looked at him. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm barely aware of the name, to be honest with you. But go on, Jason. There's more to this. Maybe there's uh, an add-on. Second question. I've had a hard time finding any joy in any type of entertainment and hobbies since I've become awakened. What are some things you all do to try and unwind and recharge? Thank you and much love. Here's the thing. I'll use myself as the example. Um, when I was young, music drove it all to the point where I was in bands. Um, you know, when I was in school, the only thing on my notebook was, you know, the bands that I was so interested in. Punk rock came along. I became very interested in that. So all these years later, when you begin to realize how much programming and artificiality was put into all of it, um, at first you're upset because this thing you loved has been called into question. It's a bit like the five stages of grief. You do get angry. You, you go through those stages. But after the fact, um, you're never going to view it the same, or at least I'm never going to view it the same. But it doesn't mean that you can't get enjoyment uh, of some kind. But in, in terms of music, what did I do? Well, look at me now. I'm you know, re relearning mandolin, playing my guitar more, making my own music. Um, once you know about things, maybe you're not so predisposed to the programming. That's what I would add. Yeah, I, I'm still into music. I, I still look at certain movies and things, not a whole lot. If someone happens to recommend something for research purposes, I'll watch it. That's happened a few times with Matt Landman, for instance. But I still listen to a lot of the same music I used to, just because I'm capable of divorcing my emotional self and the logical self. I can keep those things separate. I can listen to something for enjoyment or watch something for enjoyment. But I know better what a lot of these things are supposed to be. I actually did a quick look up on Haley Salasie. Is that right? Um, that looks like an interesting story. Maybe we'll take time to look. Apparently, he was crown prince and regent of Ethiopia from 1960 to 28, king regent from 28 to 30, and then finally emperor of all things from 30 to 74. This is the 1900s, and they're claiming he was the tail end of what's called a Solomonic from the root word Solomon dynasty. Probably an interesting story there, but I can't add much now. Yeah, we'll have to look into that. Yeah. All right, next is Murphy Blue. Crow, could the double sun you captured be a reflection off of the said firmament? Yeah, that was actually one of my first lines of reasoning. Um, you know, and what's interesting about that, when I shot it, uh, I was doubting my own abilities. And one of the first things I did is I took a really long cardboard tube to put it over the end of the the camera and the scope to ensure that I wasn't getting any kinds of lens flare, which is a reflection. Ironically, later when Chris Van Maitre did the same thing, he did the same. He, 
he took it further. He took a black tube and he painted the inside of it black, if I remember correctly. Um, so yeah, I think it's quite possible. Really, there's two main possibilities that I'm considering at this point is that it's a source and outside of the hard fast barrier or a reflection um, on the inside or maybe the outside of the hard fast barrier. And if you recall, this all started when I was looking at the moon with a full spectrum camera and kept repeatedly finding a bright spot in the night sky. I don't remember now, third, two thirds uh, across the sky at night when I was filming. For Jason, the music work that you and Crow have brought forth lays out bands and musicians that were well known in a control system. In that vein, did you discover bands that made it through that were not part of the system? If so, could you name some <laughs> or any if there were? <laughs> it's hard to say exactly. I think that some people or a lot of people weren't starting out being part of the system. They did what they did, and then they were brought in and used. I think that's a more likely scenario. But then you also do have constructed bands by the corporations that were put into place for certain uses. Let's make an allegory. Suppose there's like a freeway, you know, a freeway that gets built for everyone's cars and it's owned by a private corporation, which is actually going on in California, by the way. Everyone who gets on that freeway is subject to the rules of that freeway and the owners of that freeway will pay the tolls, will do the things they're told, will get booted off if, if they do something wrong. Maybe it's a bit like that. Uh, you've got to remember that all the infrastructure and marketing and the pressing of vinyl and all the things that went on, that was pretty tightly controlled and it was controlled by insiders. The thing you have to understand about let's just say music projects, not even movies or video games or anything else. Let's even just look at music. For a band or an artist to be highly successful, there is a lot, and I mean a ton of effort, put in to put that individual or individuals out there. A lot. There are massive machineries that go behind a popular artist or band. And the decision has to be made at a corporate level what are we doing with X and how much are we going to push them? So it just stands to assume that they're only going to put the most effort into anything that's going to serve their purposes. And I think that's the broadest but still most specific way I could put it. Well, think of this too, Jason. How many times have we referenced, I, I do it on almost every episode image, I'm referencing lyrics because we've all been programmed by the same music and we all recognize it. But you know, think about what you knew when you were 24 years old, because really that's about the age many of the people were that wrote this. You think of Robert Plant from Zeppelin in his 20s writing all that stuff. Now, there's two possibilities here. He didn't write it and someone in the know did, or he got one hell of a different education than you and I did. No matter how you slice it, it comes up peanuts, man. Things to consider. <laughs> right. Next up is Bendy. How long after a fruit or a vegetable has been harvested is the life essence still intact? For example, I do not have the opportunity to pick an orange from a tree and juice it within minutes, so I am trying to wrap my head around the point at which its life essence begins to decline due to the fact that most fruits I would be juicing would be purchased from a health food organic store. Well, Here's the way I view it. The moment you pick it, of course, the clock has started ticking, has it not? Um, and I think it varies. Like with carrots, like I got to the point where I try to buy my carrots with the tops still on them because it's a good indicator about the health of the carrot. But the tops of organic carrots stay healthy. I mean, I could go replant those in the yard 
sometimes two weeks later, and they would grow. Um, so things, carrots, the life essence is in there much longer. An orange, same thing. Um, until it starts to go bad, I guess, would be the indicator that life has left it. But sure, you could go out in your yard, pick an orange that's being picked at the appropriate time. There will be life essence in that for quite some time. And by the way, if you want to compare it to all the other food we buy, um, it's got a hell of a lot of life essence because the other things we buy don't have any. Anything pasteurized, anything processed, anything in a box, no life. So I don't really think you can go wrong, but I understand your concern. From my point of view, root vegetables, life essence for quite a long time. If you leave the greens on, all the better. And things like oranges and other things, you can tell if they're still fresh, there's still life essence. Right. And you can also look into where they're coming from, and that will be a judge on how fresh is this fruit or vegetable still by the time you're in the store buying it. Obviously, because things come from different places and travel time and all that. So if you're going to a smaller place, like a smaller shop or something like that, you should be able to actually inquire a lot easier than if you're going to, say, Walmart. Right. You got to be careful and you got to do your homework, which is easier now that we're all online. This is one handy thing about having access. Uh, when I was in San Diego, it used to stun me because I'd go to the organic store where I used to bump into Charlotte Gerson, by the way. Um, and some most of that was from local co-opted farmers. But occasionally you would see things coming from South America. And you'd think, I'm in California. Why the hell is this coming from Cal uh, South America? And then come to find out that the organic laws in some of these places may not be what we expect them to be. So you've just got to do your homework, come to know the basics, but uh, put it this way, anything that's fresh and organic, you're doing thousands and thousands of miles better than anything that's pasteurized, boxed, or processed. Also keep in mind that most places have farmer's markets, and if you want to know when it was picked, ask the farmer you're standing in front of. There it is. <laughs> There's a lot to be said for knowing the guy who grew what you're eating. Next, we have Aaron of the Seeking Truth YouTube channel. My question is about the great fires that happened in the 1800s in the U.S. and all over the world. I think it's very strange the way the cities burnt to the ground around the same time. What are your thoughts on the fires? Well, I guess we, since I didn't live in this time, I'll ask a question about the time we do live in. What about the Australian fires? What about the California fires? Something's different, isn't it? Something smells wrong, feels wrong, is wrong. When I grew up in San Diego, um, you expected some wildfires every now and again. I don't know if I had to pull a random, you know, maybe every eight, 10 years. Some of those would get bad, but it's nothing like we see now. What we see now is many, many fires at once. They're much worse. Um, you don't have to be told what's going on there, do you? And by the way, what are those white lines? over your head. What's in those? Anything that might make a plant that ingests it burn more readily? I'm just asking. I mean, what would you say, Jason? Well, let's look at this from a practical point of view as well. In the mid to late 1800s, you had cities getting considerably more congested as industrialization came in. More and more people were packing into these places and they're throwing up buildings. And what were they made out of? Wood. One little accident. Candle. Yeah. Candles and gas too, right? Absolutely. It's really not that unusual to think that one knocked over candle could start a really bad situation. So do I think that there's anything to fires all over the world? No, I think it has to do with industrialization and just people coming together. Because when you have lots of people together, things can have a domino effect. And that just makes the most sense to me. 
I, I would add one more thing before we move on. Um, consider the normalization of the fires we see now that are not normal. Is it possible the accounts of the supposed historical events has been skewed to make it seem more normal? What we're seeing now, uh, from my point of view, what we see now is far from normal. What's going on now is definitely <laughs> suspect beyond all belief. Far from normal, and everybody knows it, but unfortunately, we can't talk about it here, and that tells you something about what's going on now. When you can't talk about a thing, that means a thing is being protected and hidden, to be blunt. Yep. Next, from Reperception, my request is to please open the discussion to help those of us in need of source or sources for the highest quality drinking water. Do you and listeners have any recommendations? Yeah, that's easy, actually. Go ahead. I use a filter called a Alexa Pure, and that can take most nasty water that you put through it and out comes gorgeous, amazing, fresh tasting water. And there's three different companies of systems that all do basically the same thing. They're called gravity filters. And I think they're all still in business as far as I know. That's Berkey, Alexa Pure, and Pro Pure. And there's probably others as well. Those are the three I know off the top of my head that I see advertised together. And they all work the same way. They've got filters in them. And as long as you make sure you buy the right one, it gets everything out just about like 90 something percent. It will also get out fluoride should you be fluoridated in your area. I'm not where I'm at. I'm really close to being on well water where I live. It's a local spring that everything comes from in the area we live in right now. But if you're not, if you're in like, say, a major city with real crap water, it'll do the job still. And believe me, when I first started using these and... Obviously, you could taste it in the water, but the first time I made coffee at home, that's when I really started noticing like, wow, this is making a significant difference. And those are easy systems, a couple hundred dollars at most for the biggest ones they make. There's also reverse osmosis systems you can get in the two to $300 range that I've seen, and that will do the same thing. Reverse osmosis gets out just about everything, including fluoride. On top of that, if you don't want to go through that, if you have a Whole Foods near you, all Whole Foods that I'm aware of, any of the ones I've been in, have a water machine in them where you can get both reverse osmosis water and the distilled, like the pretty much this is nothing but water. So those are some really, really easy options. The things I recommend against are bottled waters because most of them, you are kind of taking a crapshoot and where they come from. And even if the water source is good, you don't know what's in the packaging. Right. And sometimes they end up having fluoride because most of that stuff is not labeled. When I was in San Diego, I used reverse osmosis. Uh, part of the problem is, is none of this is easy, man. You're, you're drinking this. Like I'm a person who doesn't want to drink fluoride. So I go to get reverse osmosis when I'm in San Diego because they fluoridated the hell out of that water um, without much public input, I might add. Um, and then you're taking a shower. And when you're taking a shower, you're absorbing the things you don't want to drink. It's really, it's really quite a crime to me to force people to ingest a thing they don't want. But reverse osmosis, some people keep touting um, distilled water. Now, I'm going to be perfectly frank about this. I have used it, but there are people who I consider pretty knowledgeable that claim if you drink nothing but distilled water, you're washing all the minerals out of your body. Well, that's part of the problem with reverse osmosis. Everything is being removed from the water pretty much. So here's the thing. It's not that hard to research and find out what other people were doing, but also we're about to run an episode or maybe just have with Mr. John Brisson. Uh, who's very knowledgeable on these things. So in the forums or through contact, you can get a hold of people who know what they're talking about. 
As far as I understand it from the science I've looked at, reverse osmosis still leaves a little bit of trace minerals. Distilled water gets it all out to the whatever the quality of the filtration is. I personally, if it was me, wouldn't drink distilled water for every single thing that water is used for. But you can use distilled water uh, to help flush you out and things like that. That's the way I understand it. And I know there's arguments on both sides. But you're not going to do any harm using reverse osmosis. And reverse osmosis tastes better just because it does have a very slight mineral content. So try it yourself. Make your own decisions. But those are my experiences. Right. Uh, I know what I do. Jason knows what he does. But truth is, someone like Brisson probably knows more than we do. And you will be able to contact him through the Crow 777 radio website. Next up is Aubrey from Guadalajara, Mexico. I have been with you since the first days of YouTube and now live by the motto, belief is the enemy of knowing. That sounds really familiar. (laughs) So I have a request and a question. For Crow, could you tell us about the seven-foot racer snake incident? For both of us, what are your thoughts on the jet fuel hoax? <laughs> this came up in the uh, in the forum. Some it might have even been Aubrey started a rattlesnake thread um, because I mentioned that was one of the things we did because we were testosterone driven young man who had to prove how brave we were. But where I grew up, one of the things that tested your little manlyhood in your group when we were young, um, was catching snakes. And it was funny because there were a couple people. One was from New York, didn't want anything to do with snakes. So he always got made fun of. He did not like snakes. And they used to do mean things with snakes to that guy <laughs> to make fun of him. But there, every snake in, that we had in San Diego had been caught with the exception of a cu- couple. One's called a coach whip. To my knowledge, no one's ever hand caught a coach whip, but there was another one called a racer, and I'm not sure what kind. I posted what kind in the forum. Typically, they're at least six feet long. They're black. They are the fastest damn snakes. You can aim for the head of a six-foot racer and miss his tail by a foot. That's how quick they are. Um, We were hiking one day, and I had combat boots on, and we kept hearing this little squeak, 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 squeak as we walked. And as I was walking down the trail, as I went to put my foot down, a baby rat rabbit ran under my foot, and there was at least a seven-foot racer on his tail. That was what the squeaking was. When I put my foot down, it just happened by chance to land on the racer. There were about, I don't know, up to my waist, from the ground to my waist, that's how much head and and snake was not under my boot. And there was the rest of that seven foot plus snake on the other side. And all at once, I realized I'm going to be the king of this place. I'm going to be the first guy to, to catch a black racer. Well, as the story goes, we sat there for, I don't know, 25 minutes with that snake pinned under my boot. I got bit so many times, I can't tell you. And to put it quick, cut it to the quick, I did not catch the snake. And I had him pinned to the ground. Even my friend tried to grab his tail to shorten down how much head was free. He got bit a number of times. I was so bit that we finally gave up. Um, to complete the story, after I got out of the Marine Corps, one day we, we saw maybe a four or five foot black racer. I took off my black t-shirt, used it as a screen, and apparently it kind of blinded the snake, and I actually caught that guy by hand. Here's the thing about racers. Not only are you going to get bit, and you will get bit. They'll bite you three times in one strike. Uh, they poop, and that poop is the foulest smelling thing. So there is the seven foot racer incident. <laughs> <laughs> As far as the jet fuel hoax, I actually discussed this with Randy from Houston, and while he agrees that the weight seems really odd, he says, at least as far as he knows, yes, 
regular fuel, like what's called jet fuel, is indeed used on planes because he's around them quite a bit with his business. Now, is there something too that maybe once you're in the air, it doesn't use as much fuel as it would on the ground? There could be something to that, but that's as far as I've got investigating that because I don't know too many people who really deal with planes on a regular basis. Well, from my point, I think it's pretty clear that when we worked out the weight and there were all these clips showing how many, you know, cars that would be, that that doesn't work out. But uh, I don't, I'm not mechanical enough. I know something's wrong with what we're being told. You can work it out just by simply doing weight and uh, seeing people show you things like how many cars on a wing that would be. Makes you wonder, you know, are you getting 500 miles to the gallon once you're in there? I don't know. And I do recall we found a clip online where these guys had a big jet engine. I think it was chained down in like a big building. Yeah. And they kicked it off with, with jet fuel. Then they detached the jet fuel and it appeared to be, I don't know, wind air pressure or something running it. Uh, the implication of the clip was, look, we only needed the the fuel to start the jet jet engine, and look, it's running without fuel. Um, to be fair, it's like same thing with telescope footages. You know, I wasn't there. I can tell you what I think it looks like, but I wasn't there. But that clip was pretty compelling. Yeah, my hypothesis on the whole thing is that you absolutely would need fuel with a turbine to get it going because you really do have to get a high speed mechanism shot with a good jolt of energy. So the burning, the combustion, it's getting it going. Now, are turbines designed, once they're really up and running, to run off of compressed air? That's where I'm questioning. Perhaps planes don't use as much fuel as we are led to believe. I accept that as a possibility. However, you're talking about some pretty heavy-duty mechanics there when you're referring to 747s and things like that, and that's unfortunately just beyond anything I can get access to easily. Well, my main thing, you know, that's what I'm thinking too. So what, you get 500 miles the gallon or something like that once you're up in the air. But here's here's the other part of it. And there's a lot of people that work on jet engines. You would think someone, you know, in the information age would, would be saying more about it. So seems like something is off there if you do the weight ratio. But like I said, I'm not mechanical enough to take that further. And without a lot of investigation, that's all I can add. And we reach a lot of people who do a lot of different things. If anybody out there knows anything... Let's talk about it. Maybe uh, answer under this episode in, in, on the forum and the main website. Let's get a conversation going here because this is some fascinating stuff. There you go. Next question from SW. Do you believe the world, the earth and the heavens, is eternal, having always been in existence? Or do you believe the world has also had a beginning and will have an end? Also, have either you or Jason ever tried your hand at poetry? Well, to do this backwards, yeah, when I was younger, I wrote some poetry. Uh, it's been a long time. Um, actually, I wrote songs, and songs are a version of poetry when you're writing lyrics quite often. To get back to your first thing, um, that's a tough question, and uh, a lot of it has to do with, from my point of view, perception. Um, there are teachings that I accept uh, from alchemy and other places, very old writings that say things like, any created thing will see its end. I think we can prove that. Um, the life of a human being starts to prove that. But then you take this out to a much larger concern. How did this place come to be? Um, and there really are only two options. Somehow it got created or it's always been here. I think I'll shy off from now. I, I guess I kind of have a point of view, but I don't think it's helpful. I don't know, Jason, what would you add? 
Well, the laws of thermodynamics imply that there are beginnings and endings to things, and that seems to be holding true from what we can observe. So that's the best way I can look at it. Yes, I think that this place would have had some sort of beginning and certainly looks to be having an ending because things do indeed break down in any system that you look at. So that's the easiest way I can look at it. As far as poetry, I kind of wrote poetry when I was young, but I'm definitely a songwriter. So yeah, I I would call that uh, a form of poetry. Absolutely. That's poetry. I think part of the first part of that question has to do with the mindstream too. Like, think about all the people who began to wonder, wait a minute, are we really living on a spinning ball? And after they get over that hump, the first thing that comes to mind is, wait a minute, there's no explanation for how we got here. And you see a lot of people becoming spiritual again. Um, How did this place get here? Um, I guess I will add before we move on, um, it seems that it was incremental what happened here, which implies that there is a creation, a beginning. Um, but again, this is highly speculative and partially due to point of view. So much we don't know. I'll leave it there. Next, from Reluctance. In a recent episode, you mentioned how much time you spend on your research work for each show. I had a thought that in a way you are distilling all of those hours into two hours, and I considered how that seems to me to be a form of alchemy. Have you considered it in this manner at all? I was also curious about your actual research methods, as in the past, you have mentioned you mostly use books. I struggle to find hardly any books of any value in my local library system, unfortunately. Could you extrapolate a bit on how you go about finding books to look at? You know, this whole question reminds me of, of another thing that I speak about from time to time. Like, if I went to start online a YouTube channel now, I would never almost certainly get to the point I am now because of the censorship and the controls. Um, Someone starting out now has a much steeper hill to climb to get where we are. But that's also true of the research. Um, You know, I'm on the short side of being 60 before too long here. I have a whole lifetime of, of being a researcher. I've never gone along to get along. I've always questioned. I've always read. I've always tried to know more. When I was young, I was fascinated by National Geographic. I realized later in life as that started to go downhill and then I was forced. So the main point I would make here is I don't use books alone. I use that as foundational and I have a collection or I'm aware of enough older books that it's easier for me than for someone just to go to Amazon. When you go to Amazon, it is so limited and so kind of one-sided what's offered you and what comes in a search return. Uh, It's difficult in the same way without a long experience of, of doing book research, um, just having the tools and getting started now is not as easy. I don't know. How, how well did I address that, Jason? Yeah, it is a big problem, especially with the search engines giving you skewed results. Yep. I dance between Google and DuckDuckGo if I'm just looking for general information. The thing you got to do is you can even use Wikipedia. Just don't take the quote-unquote facts there as indeed facts. Use it as a means of seeing what compilations they've put together information-wise and then just branch it off from there. I do that quite often just because it's an easy place to start from, but never take Wikipedia as fact. Double-check, triple-check everything, especially if it's something that's an important topic. But it's an easy place to get names or locations and things like that from, and you can break it off from there. As far as books, it's kind of hard to say. It really depends upon the topic, but... When you've been doing this a long time, and I'm like Crow, I was looking at things before I ever got into doing podcasting for a living. You kind of already knew things and you're drawing on your life's experiences. And I'm not 16 years old either. You know, I've been looking at stuff for a long time. 
So it's kind of a, a culmination of all of these things. And it really does come down to the topic about where you go to. Uh, even when we were doing space fraud research, I was using NASA stuff because I have to see what they're saying and what they're claiming, a timeline of events and things like that. I have to get that from a mainstream source. So it really does come down to the topic and you just have to get really good at cross-referencing between multiple platforms. And here's the other thing. How many times have I said uh, I find a distinction in books written before what I call the modern edit? And people say, well, when is that? I usually draw a line in the early 1900s. Um, you know, maybe something up in 1930 might feel like it's before the modern edit. It might not. But the further back you get, you can distinctly tell the difference between what's being conveyed and what is no longer conveyed. And one of the examples I can cite recently, and I, I hate sending people to Amazon um, because they're such a behemoth. I wish there were more options that mattered. Uh, I talked about Thomas Bullfinch's mythology. It's like a $15 book on Amazon right now. It's a hardback. It's a beautiful book. But that's written mid, you know, about the time the supposed Civil War went on, 1860s, I think. Look, and that that whole book is mythology paraphrased. In other words, these are the, the salient big points you should understand about the Trojan War or something like this. But look at what's provided in that book and then go get a book on mythology written in, say, 1970, and you will instantly understand what getting behind the modern edit means. Next is from Jillian. And if it's the Jillian I'm thinking of, I should probably read this with a Scottish accent. My question is about something I am currently experiencing. I wonder what you think of chakras and the human energy system. Since I developed my higher mind, I can feel the energy entering and leaving my body through the traditional chakras and my hands and feet. I also feel there is something on my shoulder. I can't tell if it's just energy, but my initial thought was an archon of some sort. Do you accept the idea of parasitic, invisible beings feeding off of negative emotional energy? And do you have any personal experience you can share, particularly any info on how to rid oneself of these beings? Thanks so much for your time. I'm a huge fan and wear my crow shirt everywhere I go. All right. Well, thank you, Jillian. Um, here's the thing about archons. Um, I don't accept them. I don't have experience with it. I don't see common sense basis for it. Although, and this is a big although, there are other things in very old writings that I have come across which maybe could be twisted in some way into the Archon idea. The first part of that question, yeah, accept the chakras all day long. Anyone who's looked into meditation or the credible older accounts um, from very old writings, which go back hundreds of years, supposedly, by the dates provided them and across many cultures, um, there's an energy system in a human being. And, you know, look at things like fluoride. One of the big claims there is it's calcifying your pineal gland. Well, that relates directly to what we're talking about, because in so many traditions, the chakras or the energy systems have to be fostered along, grown up, opened, whatever you want to call that, to start to get the supposed pineal gland to work. So why, why is fluoride being given us, and why is it associated in this way? I think these things are true all day long. Um, I shy away from the idea that somehow aliens are lifting people off the world to go anally probe them. And I shy away from the idea of invisible things we can't detect somehow stealing our energy. Um, part of that is because I have no experience with it. For me, a big part of life is common sense. And common sense requires that there is some normal experiential thing that I can reference to say, yeah, this exists. There absolutely is something to energy beyond the physical. 
because I've taken martial arts and I've used key energy and things like that. So I definitely think there's something to that. I've felt it. I have meditated and felt myself connecting to the universe, especially the deeper I get into the meditation. I definitely accept that. And I've had some very bizarre spiritual experiences, especially when I was younger. And I've seen negative entities do things to people. It was very obvious there was something going on that wasn't normal. I guess you could say. Here's the thing. I don't subscribe to any one notion of what they might be, but there was some sort of negative presence affecting things. So there's something to it, but as far as putting a label on it, like an archon or something to that effect, I can't prove that one way or the other. Well, there's dark forces in this world, right? And how many episodes have we done to show uh, energy? It's a thing that can't be smelled, seen, weighed, stuck in a bag, won't be recognized by science, but yet we know, don't we, um, that human beings can generate energy. It's the idea of spell casting. Well, is that some kind of magical? No, for the most part, that's intention and fooling humans into doing things, thinking that they're doing the correct thing. That's a big part of it. This is all like forms of energy. But uh, anyhow, let's keep going here. Next up is Aldana. Is your intro music of the episodes in 432 hertz and why did you have to change the first one to the music you have right now the previous one was more exciting and i was literally dancing to it every single time now i just skip it i wonder if aldana is listening to the music we just replaced or the initial music because i don't think i would describe the music we're running now that alex michael wrote for us uh, as less exciting a lot of people liked the first music kind of had a you know scottish feel to it. Here's the problem. I had rights to use that music. And so I used it. We went out on a show. Someone ran, I swear to you, 10 or 15 seconds of it. And they put a copyright on them and they claimed all these rights over his video. So I made a stink and said, Hey, knock it off. I've got rights to use this. They wouldn't remove it. And so I said to hell with that. I will not play that game and I won't play that game. I dumped the music. And here's the irony. That music was little known. As a matter of fact, I won't even mention the name of it here because I don't want people getting it because of what they do with their stupid copyrights. You know how many people went out, found and bought that music because we ran it all that time here? So what we did is Alex Michael, also known as Flat Earth Man, is a very talented musician. And I told him people loved that first music and we had replaced it. Some people liked it, some didn't, which is why we replaced it again. And Alex Michael wrote what I consider to be a pretty exciting tune uh, in the same vein as the initial one that we dumped because of copyright. By the way, yes, it is in 432. Right. To be clear, the first music was in 440. The second one, the one that our friend Brett wrote for us that I added some guitar to, that was in 432. And the stuff that Alex Michael did for us is in 432. And I think the stuff that Alex Michael has written is fantastic. I think it's amazing. So many people have begged that we never change the music again. And what I say is we own this music. We have no reason to change it. Not only that, it's it's great music. Um, I was a little concerned when we first got it that the crow, crow, crow thing was a bit self-serving. And what's even more ironic, you know how many people comment, why is it saying Trump, Trump, Trump? <laughs> and I say the same thing every time. I said, I guess you hear what's already in your head. Hint, hint, hint. Yeah, that never even occurred to me when I heard that. I was like, what? It's pretty clearly it's saying, saying crow. crow. Yeah, yeah come pretty on. clearly. It goes to show you what programming does. 
Yeah, exactly. There's a good example that we got right in our faces without even doing an experiment. So yeah, make of that first, as you will. <laughs> the first time I saw it, I was just like, what? How could you possibly hear that? Then we got a lot of things back. My first thing I wanted to say is, well, maybe turn off the cable news and you'll hear crow because that's actually what they're saying. Next up, we have Matt. So I accept that our bodies are designed to eat plants. Crow, how do you and Jason eat? I find this subject can be very controversial. The word vegan is loaded. Why is the media starting to push the vegan diet? What is your current understanding of the ozone layer? Is it a thing or another construct to push global warming? I live in New Zealand, I have fair skin, and I can get burnt within an hour. I lived in Gold Coast, Australia for five years. It took about two hours to get burnt, and the days are hotter than New Zealand. Lately, we had some strange weather in New Zealand. The sun was blocked by a dark gray-orange haze, and the media blamed it on the Australian wildfires blowing toward us. I find that hard to believe. It's probably a good cover to test something notorious. We seem to get a little bit of chemtrails in Auckland, our biggest city. I've never seen anywhere I live. We don't get many planes going over, maybe the odd helicopter. Can you shine any light on this? Let me start at the beginning. Yeah, sure. Our bodies are designed to eat plants. We're actually designed to eat everything. Is being vegetarian or vegan good? Yeah, it's great. If that's what you decide, and as whatever kind of human being you are, according to your genetic makeup, allows you to be healthy. You know how many people, when I was young, went vegan? And like some of them that I grew up with lost all their teeth because they weren't getting a balanced enough diet. Part of that's on them, but you see the point I'm making. What would happen if you went to an Inuit colony where the diet that they've been on includes seals and all kinds of things like that, um, and you put them all on a vegan diet, I'm guessing a lot of them would get sick. To me, how you choose to eat is a lot like religious endeavors. It disappoints me to no end when I see people say, well, I'm this religion, so clearly you're going to hell and you don't get it. That is such a downfall. And this vegan thing is a similar thing. Is it good to be vegan? Sure, it's good. Is it good to have a concern that you don't want to injure animals? That's top notch. But the fact is, you got to eat to live here. And I am convinced that certain types of human beings are not going to do well on plants alone. As a matter of fact, there are whole groups online now trying to say, oh, you're only supposed to eat meat. My point is, each human being has an inner compass, an inner barometer, an inner I know what's true for me. Now, if you feel like I don't want to harm animals and I can be a vegan and still be healthy, more power to you. But I'll tell you what, if you choose to do that, then you go out and evangelize and accuse others. You're really kind of missing the boat from my point of view. Um, and what did I miss there beyond that, Jason? The Oh, the, the yeah, the, I saw this ozone nonsense. You know, now, now in, I was there for the first ozone nonsense. Mm -hmm. It was all the aerosols and our underarm deodorant spray that did that. <laughs> and now they're telling us that, you know, the prime minister of Britain and the president of the United States saved the world. It's the ozone nonsense is nonsense to me. And it is all the same thing, um, trying to make human beings guilty. And I'll say a thing about global warming and I'll make a stern point right now. I don't accept it. But even if I was 100 percent wrong, the whole thing is designed to make human beings the problem the guilty culprit. And the truth is we have as a society zero ability to change how we get to work, how we do all the things that require us to make money to live. You know who does? 
the damn oil companies, the damn major corporations pushing this global warming nonsense. So how is it that somehow their culpability has been pushed off onto us and that clearly we need to get rid of a few hundred million human beings? I'm sorry. You guys made the tech, you guys provide the gas, and you have the wherewithal to change it if it needed changing. But to be completely to the point, I don't accept it for a second. And I will point out, we had an ice age, according to mainstream. Now we're being told if we go up two or three degrees, the world's going to end and everyone's going to die and the ocean will boil and all this other kind of fear-porny nonsense. Well, what happened when we had an ice age? How many degrees difference is that? 50? I'm just saying. Yeah, as far as what I eat, I made the conscious decision a year ago to be a vegetarian, and I'm still healthy as far as I know. That was because I, as a conscious being, decided I didn't want my existence to be subsisting off of the death of other living creatures. That being said, I'm not a crazy vegan. I still consume eggs and milk and cheese and things like that. I just try to get healthy versions of them. But I definitely think this is a personal decision and what feels right to you. And I also remember the ozone thing and that being a big deal. And as far as I know, yes, there's an ozone layer, but that's just another control mechanism that they're trying to use. They're trying to convince us that, uh, well, it's your fault. It's always our fault. Everything's always our fault. And, you know, if they're really that worried about this stuff, maybe the auto manufacturers can start letting the cars get the double and triple the gas mileage that it is possible to get instead of throttling them down like they do so you have to chew through gas. It's... It's all a control mechanism. Or admit the truth. We, you know, gas is old technology. It just is. Yeah, it's an 1800s invention. And you're talking about something from two centuries ago now. Not our fault. Not our fault. And I'll say it one more time. Not our fault. We have to get up in the morning and go to work. We have a car to do it. We have very few other options, most of us. The people who do have options are the people who make the cars, who are the biggest corporations in the world or among them. The gas companies, they're the people that could make a change. So this idea that somehow I'm guilty of their technology, not buying, and by the way, I don't accept the global warming argument to start with. And even if it is true, we know the world is cyclical. We've been informed about ice ages, have we not? There's your cycle. Absolutely. And they used to push the opposite of what they're pushing now. There's an episode of In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy from the late 70s right. that you can easily find on YouTube where they're talking about major fear porn. They're hitting you over the head with this coming ice age. And within in the a 70s. few years, and this is, yeah, yeah, this is 78, 79. I forget what year it was from. And they're driving the point home with quote unquote facts. The sci- all the scientists agree. I mean, all the scientists always agree with whatever it is they feel like pushing at the moment. And everything started flip-flopping. It's all nonsense, guys. It just is. (laughs) I just got to say it. Oh, Spock, did your service to humanity ever end? And by the (laughs) way, throw us your gang sign. Live long and prosper. Also, let's not forget that it is on record that the Rockefellers, who controlled the oil monopolies in the early 20th century, went out of their way to rip up all of the electric tracks and all the things that helped to get people around via mass transit. They wanted to sell cars and sell gas to put in those cars. This is admitted. This is mainstream history. So they made a point of all of these situations in major cities to get all the tracks ripped up and get everybody buying a car so they have to get places. So again, we didn't do that out of our own individuality. That was forced on us. Well, we're going to end up doing an episode that shows everyone who started Earth Day, 
who started the World Wildlife Fund, where Greenpeace came from. All these things were from the powers of royalty, Tavistock, and circles in that general vicinity designed to do one thing devalue human beings, make them guilty of everything, make it look like the animals were taking the brunt of it all, and then turn around and remove rights or the reason human beings matter from the equation. And we'll demonstrate it beyond doubt. Um, so anyone who thinks the Earth Day is anything more than programming, I got news for you. I can show you who started it, when it started, the exact amount of money that was put at it all those decades ago. I think it's the 70s. We'll do that at some point. All right, man, that brings the first hour of episode 197 to a close. Uh, we're not even halfway into these questions, so there's going to be quite a bit to follow. We hope you'll join us all over at crow777radio.com. That's C-R-R-O-W, 777radio.com. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Rose may have stacked some of these questions so that the more touchy-feely ones that might blow YouTube's mind are dealt with on my private server. Hope to see you over at crow777radio.com. There it is, man. Cheers.
belief is the enemy of knowing. Come.